Hello and welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine lecture series. In this lecture we will be discussing knee extensor mechanism injuries as well as overuse injuries surrounding the knee joint. Many of these problems stem from just that, aggressive overuse in our athletic population. But you can also see these frequently in our couch to 5k patient population, not necessarily from overuse but instead from what I like to call first time use. Alright, so let's begin with a quick case presentation. Our patient is a 30-year-old male with a BMI of 43. He has not seen the inside of a gym since high school football practice. We will call our patient Owen. And Owen was recently in his usual position on the couch when he stumbled across the CrossFit games on ESPN3. And now Owen is inspired. He's going to turn it all around. And where better to start the climb back to fitness than with 65 box jumps in a row? So he comes into the office four weeks later and now complaining of anterior knee pain. He's also complaining of bilateral shoulder, bilateral hip, back, and ankle pain, but for today we will be talking about the knee pain. When asked to localize it, he points right to the distal pole of his patella. You press on the distal pole and Owen winces. What does he have? That's right, patella tendonitis, also known as jumper's knee. And what if our patient was a bit younger and skeletally immature? Then what diagnosis would you be considering? Sending larsen johansson syndrome, or a traction apophysitis of the inferior pole of the patella. Alright, back to patella tendonitis. So what is patella tendonitis? Patella tendonitis is actually quite common, and not to pick on our weekend warrior patient population, but it also occurs frequently in high-level athletes. It generally presents as anterior knee pain that is localized directly over the distal pole of the patella at the tendon insertion and is painful to direct palpation. This tenderness and pain is worse in extension than it is in flexion, a finding known as the Bessette's sign. Patients coming into the office may also have some swelling at the distal pole. Like many overuse tendon issues, it stems from repetitive eccentric contractions of the controlling muscle, in this case the quadricep. Generally, these patients will also show poor hamstring and quad flexibility. Interestingly, when it comes to extensor mechanism issues, both tendonitis and ruptures, Younger patients tend to have issues with the patella tendon, while older patients, over the age of 40 particularly, will see more problems with the quad tendon. So remember, below the patella, under 40. Above the patella, over 40. Initially, most patients will have pain only following activity. As it becomes more chronic in nature, patients may develop pain during and after activity. Prolonged knee flexion when sitting at a desk at work or riding in a car may cause discomfort during the late stage of the disease. Since we're orthopedic surgeons and we like to classify things, we've also come up with a classification system for patella tendonitis. Drop this one on a colleague in everyday conversation and I promise that you will blow their minds. The classification for the symptom is based on pain. Pain only after activity is Blazina 1. Pain during and after Blazina 2. And pain all the time is the dreaded Blazina 3 patella tendonitis classification. As always, we start with plain radiographs to assess for any obvious abnormality. Typically, these come back normal. However, in rare cases, you may see a traction spur at the inferior pole of the patella. Patella height should also be assessed at this time to determine if there is any Baja or Alta. Alright, quickly, what are some methods for determining patella height on a lateral radiograph? Well, first, on a lateral radiograph with the knee flexed to 30 degrees, if you draw a line along Blumensatz line, it should intersect with the inferior pole of the patella. On the same film, you can actually calculate the incel salvati ratio, which is the length of the patella tendon divided by the length of the patella. This ratio should be between 0.8 and 1.2. 
Anything above this ratio would be patella alta and be concerning for a patella rupture, and anything below would be patella baja. It could be suspicious for a quad tendon rupture or possibly arthrofibrosis. All right, back to our patella tendonitis. At this point, however, the diagnosis can be made clinically, and an MRI would not be warranted without first attempting some first-line conservative treatments. First-line treatments include rest, ice, and anti-inflammatories. Therapy can be a useful adjuvant, especially in patients with tight quads and hamstrings. A progressive eccentric exercise routine should be started and progressed as the pain resolves. Patients may also benefit from a Chopot strap or a taping around the tendon. For one thing, everyone knows that you look a lot cooler with straps around your knees and elbows when working out. And also, the straps help to offload the tension across the tendon and the pull on the distal pole. Remember, if they ask, Doc, can I get a cortisone shot? The answer is no, unless you want to be doing their patella tendon repair later because you caused a rupture. All right, now if you've attempted conservative treatment and Owen's been compliant with laying off the box jumps for a while, but it still bothers him on and off for a year later, a further workup needs to be performed and an MRI is warranted. This allows you to assess the presence and extent of tendon degeneration. On MRI, you will see increased signal on both T1 and T2, just distal to the inferior pole of the patella. You will see this as a bright signal in the tendon on sagittal cuts. Here's a testable fact. That increased signal intensity is degenerative mucoid material. In chronic cases, the tendon may also be noticeably thickened. The operative plan is surgical resection of the degenerated tissue. This can be done open or arthroscopically, though most surgeons still tend to perform this open for the ease of identifying the degenerated tissue. The tendon is split in its longitudinal fibers and the degenerated tissue is resected. If any tendinous repair is required, it can be done with side-to-side sutures or anchors into the distal pole. Postoperatively, the patient is immobilized in extension in a hinged knee brace and progressively allowed motion and strengthening on the surgeon's preferences. Outcomes are good with most patients returning to their previous level of activity and fairly predictable pain resolution. Now, how about a full-blown patella tendon rupture? This occurs in males, generally younger than 40, less frequently than quad tendon ruptures. As with quad tendon ruptures, inflammatory arthropathies and systemic illnesses like diabetes or endocrinopathies may lead to a rupture. If the patient has chronic patella tendonitis with significant degeneration of the tendon, this can also lead to a rupture, however it is rare. Patella tendon ruptures stem from an eccentric overloading of the extensor mechanism. Forces are highest across the tendon with the knee flexed greater than 60 degrees. Typically, the patient fires the quad with the knee in a flexed position, and for an example of this, check out Victor Cruz's patella tendon injury in 2014 against the Eagles, and you'll see. The patient will complain of pain, pop, and a weakness in extension. They will have a large effusion and inability to straight leg raise. Radiographs may show patella alta on lateral views, and an MRI is not needed in an obvious complete rupture, but it may help to delineate a partial from a complete tear. Non-operative treatment may be indicated in partial tears. With complete tears, patients will typically require a primary repair, and depending on the tear location, this can be done typically with transosseous bone tunnels for tears off the pole or an end-to-end repair with a locking whip stitch for mid-substance repairs. Patients should refrain from any active extension during the initial post-operative phase to protect the repair. Now, what if our patient was a bit younger? What are some overuse injuries that we see over the extensor mechanism in our juvenile athletes? For example, let's say we have a 14-year-old male basketball player that comes into the office complaining of a two-week history of anterior knee pain that is located on the tibial tuberosity. On examination, you notice some swelling and tenderness over the tibial tubercle. What disease process would you be considering in this situation? Hodgkin-Slaughter's disease. 
Hodgkin Slaughter's disease occurs more commonly in males than females. It generally affects adolescents participating in jumping and sprinting activities. It is caused by an overpull of the patella tendon on the tibial tubercle apophysis. Remember that the tibial tubercle is a secondary ossification center. It forms between the ages of 11 and 14 and fuses with the tibial epiphysis between 14 and 18, and it is fully fused to the remainder of the tibia thereafter. This coincides nicely with the typical age that a patient will experience a rapid period of growth. Patients with Hodgkin Slaughter's disease will typically present with pain and swelling over the tibial tubercle and pain with resisted knee extension. Radiographs will typically be negative, however on lateral views of the tubercle they may show irregularity or fragmentation. MRI is generally not required to make the diagnosis, as this is mainly a clinical diagnosis. 90% of patients will have resolution of their symptoms with conservative treatment, including rest, ice, anti-inflammatories, and possibly a patella tendon strap and quadriceps stretching exercises. In refractory cases, in skeletally mature individuals that have developed an ossicle over the tuberosity and have continual pain, they may require an ossicle excision. Okay, now what if the pain that the patient was experiencing was localized to the superior pole of the patella and they still had active extension, then what would you be thinking? Quadricep tendonitis. The patient's history is almost identical to patella tendonitis, only these patients tend to be slightly older. Envision your male a middle-aged weekend warrior participating in jumping sports. So an over-40 recreational basketball league is basically a tendinopathy factory. All right, quickly, let's move into some quadricep anatomy. Remember that anatomy is filled with facts, and facts are testable. So how many layers make up the quadricep tendon? Three. The rectus femoris is the most anterior. The vastus medialis and vastus lateralis meet in the middle, and the vastus intermedius makes up the deep layer. What nerve innervates the quadriceps? The femoral nerve. And what nerve roots is the femoral nerve? L2 to L4. What nerve innervates the quadriceps? The femoral nerve. And what nerve roots innervate the femoral nerve, L2 to L4, which makes your patella tendon reflex, which nerve roots, L2 to L4. Okay, quad tendonitis typically presents as pain at the proximal pole of the patella with tenderness on palpation in the same area. Be sure to check the ability of the patient to extend against gravity to ensure you don't miss a more serious quad tendon rupture. The patient may localize pain with resisted knee extension. Again, radiographs tend to be negative, and the diagnosis can be made clinically. As with patella tendonitis, the first-line treatment is conservative. Rest, anti-inflammatories, ice, and physical therapy. Just like patella tendonitis, cortisone injections are discouraged because they may increase the risk for later tendon rupture. Again, eccentric loading exercises tend to be beneficial for patients during physical therapy. You'll notice a trend with many tendinopathies is that they respond well to therapy with eccentric loading exercises. Okay, now how about quadriceps ruptures? These occur in patients over 40 years of age. Remember, above the patella is over 40, and below the patella, patella tendon ruptures, is under 40. It is more common than patella tendon rupture and occurs more often in males than females. As with most tendon pathology, it is caused by an eccentric loading mechanism. Quadricep tendon ruptures present as pain and weakness in the extensor mechanism. They cannot extend against gravity or do a straight leg raise. Radiographs may show patella baja or be normal. Non-operative treatment is generally reserved for partial tears or those who are not operative candidates for medical reasons. Otherwise, most patients get a primary repair with reattachment to the patella, usually with a locking whip stitch in the tendon and drill tunnels through the patella. Chronic repairs may require a VY advancement or graft to bridge the gap if it has retracted significantly.
Regardless of the treatment, nearly half of all patients notice some decrease in extension strength and about half cannot return to their prior level of sport. All right, so that's quadriceps tendon rupture. So what else can go wrong in the knee with chronic overuse? Directly overlying the patella, we find another bursa that can be irritated with chronic repetitive loading or kneeling, and that is the pre-patella bursa. This can lead to what some ER docs like to call, my apologies to any ER docs listening, a septic knee. This is not a septic knee. I repeat, not a septic knee. While we're on the topic, if you're an ER doc, there's three things that come to mind that you shouldn't say when, in fact, they are not that thing. The first is prepatella bursitis. This is not a septic knee. A septic knee is a surgical emergency and a literal race against time to save the cartilage from the destructive matrix metalloproteinases released from the neutrophils during the destructive infection. The next is calling a patella dislocation a knee dislocation. Please. Please stop doing this. It literally makes my heart skip a beat every time. Knee dislocations, as we will talk about in the trauma series, can be disasters. And thirdly, isolated pubic rami fractures in the elderly are not hip fractures. They're not even close to hip fractures. Okay, that's my little rant. I honestly know 99% of ER docs don't do this, but if you hear one of your colleagues doing this and you know who I'm talking about, please reprimand them in some fashion, preferably in some publicly embarrassing way. All right, let's go back to prepatellar bursitis. This is caused from chronic kneeling seen frequently in carpenters. Remember that the prepatellar bursa is not in continuity with the joint. Most times it is caused by an inflamed bursa, but if you are worried about septic bursitis, which can be of particular concern in wrestlers, the bursa should be aspirated with fluid set for cultures and gram stains so antibiotics can be tailored accordingly. Most times this resolves with conservative management, either knee pads or compressive wraps, and it goes without saying if you're worried about infection, please don't inject steroids into it. If the bursitis continues to come back, an open or arthroscopic bursal resection can be performed. All right, let's turn our attention over to the medial side of the knee and move a bit anterior and distal down to the pes anserinus insertion. First, what makes up the pes tendon insertion site? There's the sartorius in layer one. Between layers one and two lie the gracilis and semitendinosus with what nerve? the saphenous nerve. Two useful mnemonics for remembering the order of the tendons are one, say grace before T, SGT, sartorius gracilis semitendinosus, or for those of us that don't drink tea, some goddamn tendons, SGT. You can even add some goddamn tendons, man, to remember that semimembranosus is there on the posterior medial aspect of the tibia, though it's technically not part of the pes insertion. Patients with pes bursitis typically present with pain and tenderness over the anterior medial proximal tibia. Imaging studies will typically be negative. Conservative treatment is the mainstay with rest, anti-inflammatories, and icing. If patients fail the initial round of conservative treatments, a cortisone injection into the bursa may be beneficial. Quickly, we'll touch on semimembranosus tendonitis. For this clinical presentation, think of a 30-year-old male endurance athlete that has recently completed a triathlon and now has knee pain. The pain is in the posterior medial aspect of the knee, worse with deep flexion and resisted knee flexion. MRI shows the medial meniscus to be fine, but there is edema around the semimembranosus tendon at its insertion on the posterior medial condyle of the tibia. This patient has semimembranosus tendonitis. It responds well to conservative treatment and physical therapy. Just know that the diagnosis exists, and it should be in your differential when someone is complaining of posterior medial knee pain that is worse with activity. Alright, so the last condition we're going to discuss is probably one of the most commonly encountered during office hours and by your friends asking you about their new onset knee pain. Iliotibial band friction syndrome is incredibly common. In essence, it is caused by a tightness of the IT band or a relative tightness caused by altered gait mechanics or malalignment. 
So let's go over some of the anatomy of the IT band and the pathologic factors associated with the development of IT band friction syndrome. The IT band is a continuation of the tensor fascia lata, which originates on the iliac crest near the anterior superior iliac spine. The band travels down the lateral aspect of the leg, over the greater trochanter, down the lateral thigh, and inserts on Gertie's tubercle on the proximal anterior lateral aspect of the tibia. The tensor fascia lata and iliotibial band act as a hip extensor and abductor. At approximately 30 degrees of knee flexion, the IT band crosses intimately over the lateral femoral condyle. This is what we're concerned with today. During repetitive use, seen with running and cycling, the iliotibial band will shift across the lateral femoral condyle with each flexion and extension motion. If the IT band is excessively tight, there will be increased compression on the underlying bursa, causing inflammation and pain. The typical presentation of IT band syndrome is that of an endurance athlete. It might be a hill runner in a question stem that comes in complaining of lateral-sided knee pain just over the lateral femoral condyle. Usually it is most bothered during activity and relieved with rest. The patient may have just had a change in their activity level, either a couch to 5K or a half marathoner, now training for the full. On physical exam, it's important to note the overall alignment of the extremity. Iliotibial band syndrome has been associated with varus deformity and flat feet. Patients will usually be tender directly over the lateral femoral condyle. Two good provocative maneuvers are the single leg squat test and the over test. The single leg squat test compresses the band over the lateral femoral condyle, causing pain, particularly as they try to rise from the flex knee position. The Ober test assesses the IT band tightness. This is performed by placing the patient in the lateral decubitus position with the painful extremity up. The painful hip is then taken through a range of motion from abducted and flexed to extended and adducted while the knee is kept at 90 degrees. Pain or inability to adduct the knee to the examining table indicates IT band tightness, which helps to both confirm the diagnosis and target your rehabilitation goals. IT band tightness also contributes to greater trochanter bursitis and patellofemoral syndromes, so it is important to look at these disease processes as well during the examination. Plain radiographs of the knee are usually normal, but can be useful again to look for any malalignment, particularly any varus deformity or lateral patellar tilt. This diagnosis can be made off the history and physical exam alone, and therefore an MRI is not typically warranted without first attempting conservative treatments. As usual, first-line treatment includes rest, ice, anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy to work on IT band stretching and hip abductor strengthening. Patients should be cognizant of their training schedule and should gradually progress their intensity to avoid any sudden increases in intensity. In most cases, anywhere between 50 to 90% of patients will improve with one to two months of conservative treatment. The difficulty becomes in getting your endurance athletes to dial back their training for that length of time. If first-line therapy is unsuccessful, some patients may benefit from a cortisone injection into the bursa. If the patient continues to remain symptomatic, then an MRI may be warranted to rule out any underlying pathology. Operative management for refractory cases involves excising any underlying cysts or inflamed bursa and possibly excising out the posterior portion of the IT band over the lateral femoral condyle. This can be combined with a Z-plasty lengthening of the IT band as well. Alright, that concludes our talk on knee extensor mechanism injuries and overuse injuries surrounding the knee joint. The big takeaways from this talk are that most of these issues can be treated conservatively with activity modification and rest and anti-inflammatories. The challenge is convincing some of your endurance athletes to obey activity modifications. The next lecture will cover issues surrounding the patellofemoral joint. Thanks for listening.